Would you please turn to the book of Joel, the book of Joel chapter 2 for our scripture reading today. Joel 2, beginning in verse 21, Sharon is going to read God's word for us. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sharon. We are in the midst of a total of five weeks of enjoying some guest preachers. This is week number four of five, allowing me to take a two-week vacation and have some dedicated planning time, allowing Joshua to prepare for next Saturday's Emotions Conference, which I recommend you attend. But it's, it's a strategic series for us as well because it gives us an opportunity to highlight other churches with whom we have a relationship, a friendship, and a genuine appreciation. I'm so glad we're not the only ones in San Diego preaching Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Far from it, right? We need every Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, and I hope you're growing in your appreciation of some, some of the relationships God has given us in this area. Well, I had previously announced that Tim Kane from Kaleo Church in El Cajon would be with us today, but some things came up for Tim, and he volunteered so kindly his pastoral partner, my friend Wes Van Fleet, to come. Wes has been with us a number of times, so I don't think he needs much introduction, except to say this. Wes, we appreciate you and Tim. We appreciate and thank God for the ministry, the gospel ministry of Kaleo Church. We pray for you. 
As a church, we love you as a church, and we're so grateful you would be here today to minister God's word. Would you please come and do so? Thank you, my friend. Thanks, bro. Yeah, I think I'm one of the only guys who will ever come <laughs> with my own music stand. And it is a Grace, Grace Church special because every time I bring my uh, weighty iPad and your music stands don't bear the weight. So it's, a, it's an odd, odd thing. But I value your pastors and I especially value your church as a whole. I think every time I come, I have many things to say about you, but this morning was just another reminder. I can come and feel like it really is extended family. Um, I can walk in and catch up on conversations with 10, 15 of you, and that's a, that's a joy for me. So it's a privilege and an honor for me to be here. Let's pray, and then we'll get into Joel chapter 2. Well, Father, we rejoice that you are a God who can restore all things. Father, you are in the business of taking that which is broken and seemingly hopeless and bring new life and joy and refreshment in the midst of it. And so I pray this morning, even as Tab was praying for the griefs that many carry in the body, that this word from one of your ancient prophets would come and restore and build up. And Lord, would you inject hope into the veins of your people to where they could live another week in the realities of this world as those who shine as lights in a dark place, who have hope in the midst of grief, who have longing for you to make all things new because you said you would and we know you keep all of your promises. And so, Lord, would you come and through your spirit encourage each and every one of your children this morning for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen. When the infamous movie, The Wizard of Oz, was first released in 1939, and I'm aware some here, unfortunately, may have never heard of that movie, <laughs> uh, which may be aging some of us, Americans were trodden down and they were despairing over this decade-long Great Depression. Now, imagine in the midst of the whole country starting to fall into this place of doubt and darkness and despairing. The world seemed as if it was losing hope moment by moment in the minds of many Americans. Now, as people gathered any change they could, they would go flocking into the theaters to escape the reality of the Great Depression for just a couple of hours. And they were introduced to this small-town farm girl named Dorothy. Now, like the mood of the day, the film began in black and white, as movies did back then. But as most know, Dorothy ends up in this place called Oz, and color comes rushing in to this black and white film. Not only was this a modern marvel as far as film was concerned, but the reason for the color coming rushing into this film had a purpose. Writer Frank Baum once wrote, when Dorothy, representing the common people, is in the land of Oz, she overcomes her obstacles which were meant to represent America overcoming the Great Depression and World War II. 
The use of color gives off a sense of optimism for the audience about the troubles that lay ahead. In Joel 2, 28 through 32, we get this vision of a day where God will begin this new creation amongst his people. It is a vision of when God will bring color to the darker things of this world. Now, throughout redemptive history, we've seen patterns of decreation and then new creation. One example of this among many is the Tower of Babel story, where God comes and he confuses the languages of his people or the language of his people, and he disperses them among the nations. Decreation is, is often a form of judgment to wake God's people up to how grand and marvelous he really is and how dependent they ought to be. Decreation is a, often a form of judgment over and over. God's people repeat this pattern throughout the biblical narrative of God decreating and recreating. Earlier in Joel 2, there's this decreation of the land that's supposed to stick out as we see these locusts come in and they've absolutely ravaged and decimated the land that God's people live in. And yet, where the locusts have absolutely annihilated the well-being of God's people in this act of decreation, God says positively in Joel 2.25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. God is promi promising to bring color and newness into this darkness and devastation that the people of God are experiencing. So let me ask you, when we read of God's promises to restore all that is dark and broken, do we believe him? Can I encourage you to be really honest with yourselves for a moment? Where have you personally given up on God and his ability to restore? Where have you given up on God and his ability to restore. For some of you, it may be an unbelieving family member or friend, and it's been so long of you praying for them to come to know the Lord Jesus that you've given up. You stopped praying a long time ago. For some of you, it may be bringing your abuser to justice, that which has stayed in the darkness, you're long longing for the light to shine upon. For some, it may be the nagging effects of PTSD that seem to haunt you day after day after day. For some, it may be your own lack of love for people because of all the wounds you carry from past hurts, from past relationships. Whatever it is, God is not calling us to live like these things aren't real. We're not supposed to have this paradox that God is good and then we pretend like all the bad things aren't there. But he is a God that is calling us to bring the real version of us before the real version of him. And I think if many of us are honest, we don't have the strength to do this. 
Some of us have been so beat up, we're so tired, we're so wounded, we're so hurt. We don't have the strength within ourselves. And sometimes the shame of the past or even the act of attempting to bring the real us before the real God seems so painful that we just do what we always do and shove it down and live in this cycle of denial and darkness. There are areas of our lives where hopelessness has overtaken hope altogether, isn't there? Well, God, in his grace, he knows this about us. He knew it about the recipients of Joel's prophetic preaching. And God knew that even the restoration of just the land that the locusts destroyed would not be enough for the people of God. You see, God knew he had to do a work in the hearts of the people or this cycle would continue. And this work of bringing color into the darkness and hopelessness is bringing a new creation that is described in Joel 2, 28 and 29, which reads, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. When Joel receives and communicates this vision of this future day, he begins by saying, and it shall come to pass afterward. After what? Well, Joel is taking something that the prophet Isaiah said approximately 140 years prior to Joel's ministry. And he's wrapping it all up in that tiny, short statement that it shall happen afterward. Let me read you the context. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3 says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. As you keep reading in Isaiah 2, you realize that almost the entirety of the chapter is about this day of the Lord. It is this day that holds simultaneously judgment for some and salvation for others. And only those who will humble themselves under God's king and his exalted rule over all of the nations will receive salvation. Joel will pick up this imagery more in chapter 3 to show that God's messianic king rules from the highest of mountains and will one day turn every aspect every single aspect of life into a colorful new creation. Okay, so Joel is taking all of this imagery from Isaiah 2, and he applies it to his own vision of what shall come to pass in the latter days. But to understand when this will happen, I think it's better to look to the fulfillment of Joel's words, which we actually have, in the New Testament. 
First, before I get there, I want to do a little bit of foundational work. Two minutes. In Luke 24, God turns the darkness of the death of his only son into the prototype of color and new creation as he raises Jesus from the dead. He is the firstborn. Those who are in him will follow suit. If you are in Christ, as surely as he rose, you shall rise as well. After Jesus raises from the dead, he tells two different sets of disciples in Luke 24 that the scriptures, the whole Old Testament, was about him, including Joel. Soon after that, he ascends to his throne as the king of kings, like Isaiah 2 foretold. Then, just a couple of weeks later, the promised Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples and others present in Jerusalem. Now, the fulfillment of Joel 2 is found in Peter's very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 begins with the disciples. They're, they're hanging out together when all of a sudden this mighty rushing wind and tongues that appeared like fire were all around them. This is apocalyptic imagery that heaven is unveiling itself upon the earth. Acts 2.4 describes what this was. It says, and they, the disciples and all present, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Joel's foretelling of the Holy Spirit being poured out one day in the future is being experienced and witnessed in real time here by the disciples. But this inbreaking of the day of the Lord is primarily, primarily an experience of color and new creation of salvation above judgment. But this inbreaking of the day of the Lord is meant to be nationwide. He is going to use these disciples to bring about color and salvation and hope in the midst of the whole world. And we see that it is a massive, massive event that is meant to reverse the confusion at Babel as well as spark the fire of new creation that began at Christ's resurrection. We see this in Acts 2, 5 through 12. Luke writes, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You've got to realize in those days, most Jews made a, a, a full trek all the way to Jerusalem, wherever they were from, once to three times a year. And so this is one of the times when all of them would have been present in Jerusalem. And at this sound of the rushing wind and the tongues like fire, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It's kind of like if you guys came into El Cajon and saw some amazing ministry, you'd say, aren't these El Cajonians? Like, it's it's like the least of the people, right? <laughs> and, and how is it, they continue, that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Jude, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, this new creation is working against the decreation of Babel. God, the Holy Spirit, has come down upon these men as has gathered from all over the world. And where Babel was this decreation through confusion and separation, Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, is the Spirit himself recreating through understanding and unity. A vast assortment of languages are spoken, but not in judgment and confusion, but in unity and grace. This is God speaking to each nation present in their own language. The speakers here are the disciples, if you look at verse 7, the Galileans. Yet each person is hearing what they have to say in their own tongue. It's really a miracle. It's, it's a, a marvelous, majestic miracle that could only happen by the Spirit of God. And I want you to notice the diversity of the nations present. All being brought together under the power of the Holy Spirit. As this rejoicing and marveling and even perplexity continues, there was another group present, though. Acts 2.13 says, But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. This is supposed to be sarcasm that's showing that the ridiculousness of these mockers' statement is that the disciples weren't those who started drinking at 9 a.m. And you contrast the statement of being drunk at 9 a.m. with the reality of what is happening, that the Spirit has come down and has brought nations together, is making them new and equipping them to send them out, is a massive contrast to show the reality of who God is and what he's done. And it is a reality that we as humans love to give natural consequences and natural descriptions of things when really God works through those and comes and explodes all of our expectations. So how do we make sense of it? If they're not drunk, how do we make sense of it? Well, Peter has a calling here. You see, he's not just going to go run and hide and deny Christ like he once did. He has been now filled with the Spirit. The Lord has called him to feed his sheep. And so Peter wants to give answers to these people's questions. And so here he is, the denying disciple, stands up to preach his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And as Jesus has prepared him earlier by explaining that the Old Testament was all about him, Peter starts his sermon with none other than Joel 2, 28 through 32. Now what is interesting and dire to understand is that Peter actually changes a couple words of Joel's original prophecy. Where Joel said, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter quotes it as, and in the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So as Peter is explaining that this is not drunkenness the people are witnessing, but he's explaining this is the last days, that the end times actually began at the resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit. 
Peter is starting to preach from Joel 2 saying, the end times new creation has begun. Christ was the prototype and the spirit coming amongst all people is now setting forth this new creation. Not only do the New Testament authors agree that the resurrection of Jesus ushered in the last days, but the pouring out of the Spirit is another evidence that the history of the world began winding down on that day. Or to say it another way, the death and the resurrection of Christ, as well as the outpouring of the Spirit, are clear indicators that the true and final day of the Lord is coming. It is no longer a mere prophecy or foretelling of Joel, but it is an actual day that has broken into history to warn those who don't believe and to encourage those who do that Jesus will return and bring his final judgment and salvation. And due to that fact, Peter's sermon makes all the sense in the world. The reason he uses Joel 2 is to make sense of what the people are experiencing. But the rest of the sermon is this bold, powerful, and loving call for people to receive those inbreakings of the day of the Lord to encourage them that God can take the darkest, the most hopeless situations and make them new. If God in his love sent his own son to endure all of the darkness of this world, all of our sins and then raised him up victoriously then him sending the holy spirit is the as the one who is coming to give us new hearts that experience god's restoring power up close and personal is just another evidence that god will complete that which he began in his people so peter continues his sermon not by preaching about the Holy Spirit, interestingly enough, but by doing what the Holy Spirit loves to do. Peter begins glorifying Jesus. And Peter's main point of the sermon is basically this. We don't have time to read the rest of Acts 2. But it's basically this. The same Jesus that was crucified in the presence of those actual people listening to the sermon was also raised from the dead he now reigns on high from the throne of God and graciously poured out the spirit to begin his new creation project. And as you read the rest of the book of Acts, you see the gospel go as if Christ himself sending these witnesses by the power of the spirit is showing up nation by nation by nation. And the gospel starts to make people new. So then the question we must ask ourselves is this, what are we to do with this new creation talk? What are we to do with this new creation talk? Well, the good news is the audience in Acts 2 asked the same question for us. Acts 2, 37 through 38 tells us that the people hearing Peter's sermon cried out, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter's answer was to repent and to be baptized. Now, if you're here and you have not repented of your sins, if you have not trusted in Jesus and you think this world is hopeless, Peter's call to you is repent, turn to God, and you will find the joy you've been longing for. 
become a part of his new creation project, his body of believers that don't pretend like things aren't hard, but then turn those things to the Lord Jesus, as Tab taught us, because he cares for us. But the next sermon Peter preaches in Acts 3, I think, leads to a more robust response for what we're to do. Acts 3, 19 through 21, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until, I love this phrase, until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So when the Spirit comes and fills somebody, they repent. And I'm not talking about a one time this happened when you first believed. But the Spirit has a continual presence in your life, this ministerial role to expose that in you which is lacking belief, lacking trust, is not honoring to the Lord, and is pointing you graciously to Jesus again and his kindness to you. And he does this so that when we do repent, when we repent, we begin to be, what Acts 3 says, refreshed by the new person God is making us. Christianity is not this boring, dull, keeping us from real life. It's a, a trust in the one who longs to refresh us. He wants us more alive than the world that doesn't know him. Christianity isn't just a people who don't do things. It's a people who worship the Lord Jesus Christ in all we do. That is being truly alive. We submit to the Spirit's work of refreshing by proving over and over that he is the God who can restore the stuff we cannot by our own strength. And if he sent his son and raised him from the dead, again, if he sends his spirit into us, we need to believe he can refresh and make new anything that's broken in our lives. Where the knowledge of God and the sharing of who he is and what he has done was often limited to prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament. Part of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit recreating men and women and children of all nations all of a sudden turns us into this royal priesthood, this family who bears witness to what God has done. This is no longer a responsibility for the professionals, but is now entrusted to anyone who trusts in Jesus. Like Peter did that day, now filled with the Spirit, we are these portable temples of God that are sent to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to our schools. And we don't have to have a certain amount of units in apologetics. All we have to do is bear witness that God has done all things in his son. And in doing so, we entrust him to then bring and give the same spirit that he gave to us to those whom we have the great privilege and honor of sharing the gospel with. God truly is making all things new, my friends, and he can restore the darkest of things. At the end of The Wizard of Oz, 
Dorothy realizes that as amazing as Oz is, everything she needs is actually back home in Kansas. So she clicks her ruby slippers three times and finds herself back home. The good news for us is that we don't have to choose between the world and the new creation because God is bringing them together. He started to do so that day at Pentecost. And ever since, he has brought the new creation. He's brought heaven to earth slowly and surely until earth begins to look one day at Christ's second coming just like heaven. Jesus said this to the disciples, something along these lines in John 14, 23. This is as he sits with his disciples on the last night of his life before his false arrest. And he looks them in the eyes and he says, if anyone, not just the disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will come to him and make our home with him. This is astounding. This is one of the most mysterious and marvelous truths in all the New Testament. That the God who dwelled in inapproachable light now somehow dwells in these lumps of clay. And we are now sent out, not as marvelous in ourselves, but as jars of clay that are cracked and weak and his light shines through us. He makes his home in us and he declares who he is through us. And people come to see that God truly is real because he can make all things new, even broken, doubting, cynical people like us. Heaven has come to earth. And has made its home in us partially. We are still in a pattern of waiting until God brings heaven to earth. As Revelation 21 and 22 make clear. That one day all the brokenness will be gone. Once and for all. And only light and beauty and healing will remain. So we get the great privilege, my friends, of playing a part, playing a role in making all things new. I want to leave you by encouraging you that he truly is, truly is the God who restores all things. The question I have to leave you with is, will we continue to see in black and white or will we live in the color of his new creation? Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge you are great and glorious.